Good morning. Uh, so one of the things you should know about me is I like dogs. And by like dogs, I mean I love dogs. I don't want to disparage other people's pets, but I'm gonna. Think about it. Fish, they're kind of boring. I mean, they're pretty to look at, and they might be like a natural sedative and help you relax, but they're just like, like there's only so much you could do with a fish. All right, and then, of course, you have people that, for some reason, have snakes, gerbils, or rats. That's just, that's got the ick factor, you know? Like, you know they're carrying salmonella or the bubonic plague, and it's just weird. There are some people who have, like, tarantulas as pets. Those people aren't my friends. Those people are sociopaths, so let's get that real clear. You have horses, way too big and cost too much money. Birds should really be outside. And then you have cats. And I mean, they're, they're cats. I'll be careful, I'm just gonna say they're cats. I love dogs. I am that person that if we're walking down the street and we're in mid-conversation and I see a dog, I'm no longer talking to you. I'm going, oh, who's a good boy? Who's, a, who's my best friend? I don't know, I don't know the dog, I don't know the owner, I don't care. Because I know that all dogs are my best friend. Unless they're yappy, in which case they're just an acquaintance. I'm the person that if someone tells me that they don't like dogs, I immediately am suspicious of them. Because I'm like, how, how? How do you not like dogs? They're so friendly and they're loving and they want to protect you. And yes, I know they drool and sometimes they act out and sometimes they could be kind of dumb, but they love you so much. And so help me, I think they know how to empathize with us more than some humans. Dogs are great. They're wonderful. I want to be around dogs all the time. When you think about it, when you really think about it and start to go through everything, dogs are kind of better than people. I'm just going to say it. All right, maybe not better, but they're at least easier than people, right? I'm an introvert, which is shocking for a lot of you. So sometimes it's hard for me to be around a lot of people all the time. With dogs, it's easy. You feed them, you give them water, you give them a little belly rub, you know, you give little snuggles, you take them for a walk, you throw a frisbee, and it's good. With people, sometimes it feels like you're navigating this unknown terrain where you just have conversation after conversation, joy, but then horrible conversations where something got misconstrued. It's like, for me, it's the equivalent of you're swimming in the ocean and everything's great. And then you see all these dorsal fins and you go, are those dolphins? Oh no, those aren't dolphins. Because people aren't always easy, right? Sometimes people can be challenging because we're messy. That's just the reality of it. If you came here this morning thinking, I'm gonna come to a church and I know that everyone is gonna have their lives together and this is gonna be the place where I have no relational problems, I'm gonna tell you that you could probably keep looking because that place doesn't exist. As long as there is breath in your lungs and people in your life, there's gonna be some relational hardships because friendships can be hard because people can sometimes be challenging, but, but, they're worth it. The people in our lives, the relationships we have are worth it. They're worth our time, they're worth our energy, they're worth all of that, even for introverts like me. These past few weeks we've been talking about intimacy, is what we, our series has been called, and it's this idea of how do we 
have and forge healthy friendships in this social media age. And we've talked about a few different things. We've talked about building healthy relationships by willing to initiate and to listen. We've talked about being aware of those people that are in our inner circle because those people have a lot of influence on us. We've talked about Philippians 2. Consider others more significant than yourselves and living at that intersection of grace and truth. Last week, Rachel and I had a little morning show up here, which was super fun, where we talked about those times when we might need to unfriend some people and have and learn about the importance of healthy boundaries. Today, we're going to lean into the mess a little bit and talk about how do you reconcile friendships, which is a lot easier said than done. At A10, we talk a lot about our vision and our mission. Our vision is uh, to transform lives in the city for the city, and behind that is the mission to make disciples. Um, But I want us to keep some of that stuff in mind as we build a little bit of a foundation this morning because humans have this weird, weird ability to make things way more complicated than they need to be. And so I want to, before we dig into some of the bigger stuff, I want us to be able to peel back and understand some of the simplicity of really becoming a Christian and being a disciple real quick. One of the things that I hear often, and I know our staff, and maybe you've even heard, um, is people will say, I, I can't go to church because my life is a mess. I can't join a small group or uh, a starting point or a summer fun event or a serving team because my, my life is a mess. Here's the not-so-secret secret. You're not alone. A10 has never been, nor will it ever be, a country club for people who have everything figured out in life because that's not real life. We are dedicated to providing a safe place for people to explore their faith. Sometimes we do it really well, and sometimes we make mistakes, and sometimes we get it wrong, and we have to own up to that. But we want to be able to continue to move forward, and all of us being able to walk this faith journey together, understanding that none of us are perfect, that all of us are sinners. Really, the the only requirement to give your life to Jesus isn't to have your life in order, it's humility. It takes humility to recognize that you're a sinner. It takes humility to repent of your sin. It takes humility to get baptized. It takes humility to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do this. It has to be you. And it is that same humility that can transform our relationships. We also have to understand discipleship a little bit. Discipleship at its core is that we're intentionally walking with Christ and helping others to do the same. Disciples are called to make disciples. And it's not something you simply arrive at like, ta-da, I'm a disciple. No, it's a process. It's something you are. But it takes intention. So we have humility and we have intention. And then, of course, we have love. All you need is love. Love lifts us up where we belong. And I really want to start singing Moulin Rouge right now, but I'm not going to. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus talking to his followers, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this type of love he's talking about is the love that his life depicts for us. It's this sacrificial servant love. It's putting others above yourself, not just thinking of your own needs, but of their needs as well. It sounds Fairly simple, but we understand it's complex. And then he goes on to say, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is our last foundational piece that we need to understand before we move forward. 
By this, people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. It is frustrating and downright heartbreaking that at times it doesn't seem that we know how to love each other well. Let's be real. In our culture, Christians and the church don't have a great reputation. And there are some pretty valid reasons for that. And I think one of the big reasons is because we don't know how to love each other well, or we refuse to. We'll tear each other down, hold on to grudges, talk smack about each other behind backs. We disagree disrespectfully or explosively. We're seemingly silent on important things and obnoxiously loud on seemingly frivolous things. I know this to be true because that is, was the biggest reason I didn't want to become a Christian. Before I gave my life to Christ, before I surrendered my life to Christ, my biggest hang-up wasn't the idea of a deity that I couldn't understand, wasn't the unknown of faith, it wasn't the unknown of the Holy Spirit, it certainly wasn't Jesus, it was Christians and the church, because from my vantage point, they were no different than I was. They acted just as poorly, except they tried to cover it up. Now I've aged, I'm not a cynical anymore. I know that that's not all Christians. I know that that's not all churches. I, know, I don't think that's even most Christians or most churches. But I think we need to be able to be aware of the perception that exists. And I think we need to be able to be aware and understand the importance of what it means to reconcile, of what it means to live humbly and with intent and to love well. Because when we do that, our relationships drastically change. All right, so that is our foundation this morning. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Now, we all have friends, even if you just have one friend. We all have friends, which means all of us have been hurt by our friends at some point or another, because that's just the reality of life sometimes. So how do you work through that? How do you mend that? How do you heal from that? How do you reconcile? Before we get to reconciliation, we have to talk about forgiveness for a second. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two separate things, and sometimes we want to make them the same thing, but they're different. That being said, reconciliation can't happen without forgiveness. Jesus gives us the perfect example of forgiveness, the ultimate example of forgiveness. He died on the cross and rose again for our sins so that we can be forgiven. For those that humbly surrender their lives to him, he forgives even the worst of our sins. That is Jesus. That is the forgiver, and we are the forgiven. As such, we too are called to forgive others. And I think regardless of you're a Christian or not, we all understand the importance of forgiveness. We all understand the power of forgiveness, but sometimes it's easier said than done. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking to his closest friends. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sounds fairly simple. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What? I don't want to do that. I want to stop at the end of verse 3. If they show me remorse, I will forgive them. I don't want to have to keep 
forgiving and forgiving and forgiving? That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's pretty straightforward. If someone you are close to sins against you, your friends, or God, and they show remorse and repentance, we're to forgive them, but we're supposed to keep doing it. Let's sit in how uncomfortable that is for a second. No one wants to do that. That word must is a pain in the... Because it's not easy. And here's the truth about Scripture that I think sometimes we forget. The words of Jesus are not always easy. However, I want to zero in on that word must for a second. That word must is really tied to the idea of actual remorse and repentance. It's not saying you must forgive someone for some you know fake apology. It's saying that if someone comes to you with actual remorse and repents, that you should forgive them as many times as required. But think about it. Think about it. Isn't that something we already do? Think about your spouse or your children or your parents or your closest friends. Don't you forgive them on a regular basis so that that relationship can continue? Of course we do. That's something that we already do. But when someone tells us we have to do it, that's when we kind of go, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And we especially don't want to do it when we know it's fake. Have you ever noticed that the tone and body language of someone's apology says more than the actual apology? Like if, you, if I hurt you and you tell me and I'm like, sorry about it, I'm pretty sure you're going to know I don't mean anything. Or like I have a preteen. My preteen is awesome. I love her to pieces. She's a great person. But she's a preteen. And if you've been around preteens, you know they're a special breed of something at this time in their life. And we call her on something, and she wanted to make sure I get this correct. We practice this. And she'll cross her arms. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> like, you know by the tone and the body language when someone is sincere about their apology. You can tell by the look on their face. You can tell by the tone of their voice. One of the things that I used to do a lot is I would be the king of saying, I'm sorry, but that's another thing. Don't do that. <laughs> My wife, God love her, has put up with me for 13 years, and she has taught me repeatedly that when I say, I'm sorry, but it negates everything that I'm trying to apologize for. Because it be becomes pretty clear that the only reason I'm apologizing is because I feel like I should apologize, not because I actually understand why I'm apologizing. Forgiving someone is not easy. We all know this to be true. And sometimes we want to hold on to that because we don't know what to do with it. And sometimes we don't want to let go and forgive someone because we think it's going to benefit them and get them off the hook. But the reality is the benefit is really ours. Louis B. Smeads, who was a renowned ethicist and theologian, wrote a book in the 80s called Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. And in his book, there's a quote that a lot of us have probably heard before and didn't know where it came from. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Now, there's not enough time this morning to talk about the psychological and emotional aspects of hurt, shame, and forgiveness. But I want to share this quote with you because I think it speaks to a fundamental truth that we often miss when we're hurt. Our unwillingness to, to forgive someone 
whether they seek our forgiveness or not, makes us prisoners. We willingly give up our freedom because it makes us feel like we have power over them. And in reality, we've become captive to our hurt, pain, and shame. And there are some of us in this room have, who've been living in a prison for years. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Smeads also makes it a point to highlight the idea of forgiving and forgive, forgetting, and that they're very different things and in some ways really aren't possible. <clears throat> he says, forgiving does not erase the bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for our future. I love that so much because I know how my life has changed repeatedly because someone offered me forgiveness. I've seen in other people's lives when they have offered forgiveness or received forgiveness how altering that is. It is life-changing. But forgiveness and reconciliation are, are different things. Forgiveness is a, is a part of, the, of the, the process of reconciliation, but it only takes one person to forgive. Someone may never seek you out to ask for your forgiveness. That doesn't mean that you can't forgive them. Reconciliation takes two or more people. Romans 12, 17 through 18 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This means we are intentionally seeking out amends. We are humbly and intentionally, with love, seeking out amends. We're seeking reconciliation. We're not repaying anger for anger, hurt for hurt, or evil for evil. As it depends on us, live at peace. There will be times when reconciliation may never be a reality for some of our relationships. That's a hard truth that we need to be able to understand. However, it should not be because of you. You should do whatever it is in your power to reconcile with your friends. And if they don't want to engage now, or maybe even ever, at least you know you did what you can do. And please hear me, when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about abusive relationships. Like we said last week, if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to take yourself out of that. And if you don't know how, or if you're in that place right now, please talk to a staff member or an elder or one of the leaders in the church or someone you trust, because we want to be able to help you in that arena. But here's what kind of stinks about getting hurt. We still have a responsibility even in our pain. How someone hurts you is not necessarily your fault or responsibility. How you respond is. They're not responsible for how you respond, just as you're not responsible for how they respond. We are responsible for our actions. And here's what, just, it, it stinks. It stinks because we've gotten to a place in our social media age where some of us are waiting with bated breath to just pounce on someone when they make a mistake. We're waiting to hold a grudge. 
We're waiting to call out an infraction because we've already made up our mind about someone. We've already made our minds up about an entire group of people. And so we just wait. And it doesn't matter their intention. It doesn't matter their heart. It doesn't matter their character. If they offend us in some way, then we're going to make sure they hear about it. It's hard. It's really hard. Because it seems unfair that we have to have a responsibility when we're hurt. Christian or not, there will always be relational challenges in life. But being able to reconcile a friendship is based on having the humility to work on that relationship even when it's not perfect, even when it seems unfair. A lot of you have gotten to know me over the past year, and by all accounts, I seem generally like kind of like a big teddy bear, like I'm that guy. My go-to emotion, though, is anger, and I hate it. My entire life, that has been my go-to emotion. The amount of people that I know that I've hurt in my life with my anger, the amount of people that I've had to go and seek their forgiveness makes me really sick to my stomach. I've spent the last seven years working on not being that person who jumps to conclusions and makes up my mind about a person or a group of people and getting ticked off at everything. I had to learn to take a beat. I began to pray every day and still pray every day that God would allow me to see people the way that he sees them. I had to train myself to understand that underneath my anger was a heap of rubbish that was actually the issue. When I would get hurt, forgiveness and reconciliation were the furthest things from my mind. The only thing I wanted to do was to hurt that person more than they hurt me because I thought it would make me feel better. But it never did, ever. And I know I'm not the only one in here that can speak to that. I think we all struggle with that from time to time. I mean, there are those times when we're hurt and we just want to tear someone to shreds because they accidentally misspoke. We don't often give the benefit of the doubt anymore. Some seem downright allergic to being gracious, even though we have received unmeasurable amounts of grace from Christ. We have a tendency to judge quickly, to attack people quickly, to be disappointed quickly, to grow frustrated quickly. We have a tendency to hurt people quickly when we think that there has been injustice, even if there hasn't been an injustice. But listen, we can't forgive someone and experience that freedom. We can't reconcile with someone who's honestly trying to do right if we allow our hurt to lead our life. You will never heal. And those relationships will always remain broken. Where there is broken relationship, there is responsibility for all parties involved. For the person who's been hurt, there is the responsibility to speak up and to have that tough conversation that we talked about last week. There's the responsibility to listen, work through the forgiveness, pray for them, Jesus says to pray for your enemies. Listen, when someone hurts you, we make them our enemies. And Jesus says to pray for them. Work to reconcile and own your part of the conflict. And that's super uncomfortable. It's rare. It's rare that in conflict, it's 100% one person's fault. That doesn't excuse their behavior that doesn't make your pain or hurt invalid. 
Maybe it's 85% them and 15% you. Maybe it's 50-50. Maybe it's 99% them and 1% you. But odds are there is something that you can own. We just don't want to. A few years ago, I had a friend of mine in California come to me and he was talking about all the reasons he was angry at another person because he was hurt. And the reason he was hurt totally made sense to me. But as he continued to talk, it became very clear that he didn't think that he had any aspect of ownership in the conflict. And I asked him, what part of this is yours to own? And he said, none of it. None of it's my fault. It's theirs. And I recounted what he had just told me. What he told me was that this person hurt him, and he didn't talk to him about it. Instead, he talked to everyone else who he knew about it. And he bled on them. And he hurt them in the process of being hurt. So this person who hurt my friend had no idea. And for years, there was an open wound. And so every time that person did anything even remotely close to that, it kept bringing up that same hurt. So it was hurt and anger, hurt and anger, layered on top of each other for years that was never dealt with. Instead, it was just passive-aggressive comments, and it was side conversations, and it was telling everyone else. And I asked him again, what part of this is yours to own? And he said, none of it. None of it. Very rarely is there nothing to own. Sometimes we just need to take a step back. Sometimes we need to allow ourselves to calm down. And most importantly, we need to pray to see it. It makes me think of when Jesus talked about hypocrisy in his Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is, is because what happens when we hold on to our hurt so much and we don't think that we have any ownership of the conflict or the relationship, we set ourselves up above that other person. And we think that we're somehow better than them. And I love the way that the message says this. Matthew 7, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your friend's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your friend. So even though it's hard, even though it might seem unfair, if you are the one who has been hurt, you still have a responsibility to live humbly, to live with an intentionality, and to love well. Now to the people hurting, or doing the hurting, the ones in the conflict who need to own the lion's share of the responsibility, there's a lot for you. There's a gentleman named Ken Sandy. Ken has written several books, and his whole mission in life is to help uh, people, churches, and organizations understand how to have healthier relationships and conflict resolution. He founded uh, two different ministries. One um, is called Peacemakers, and the other one is Relational Wisdom 360. And he lays out what he calls the seven A's of confession. And I want to share that this morning with you, because if you've done the hurting, this is a fantastic path in the right direction for you. But honestly, if you're involved in any kind of conflict or broken relationship, this is a good path. So the seven A's of confession by Ken Sandy. Number one, address everyone involved. If you hurt one person, talk to that person. But if it's a group, if it's more than one, you need to address everyone. When I was a GM in Nashville, 
I oversaw a staff of 55 to 60 people during the holidays. In my second holiday season at that store, during a store meeting, I lost it. The rage monster came out in full force and I just lashed out and I knew in my heart, in my mind, in my gut that what I was doing was horrible and terrible and they didn't deserve it no matter what the outside circumstances were. The next day when one of my supervisors came and told me how unmotivated and how demoralized the team felt, I knew that I had to apologize to them, but I couldn't just go to my supervisor and say, well, I'm sorry, can you tell them that as well? That's even more dishonoring. So address everyone involved. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. And this one gets me riled up a little bit. (laughs) When you're meeting with someone to make amends, to seek reconciliation, to own your stuff, you don't get to use that as a platform for accusation. It's going back to what I said earlier, when you say, I'm sorry, but, or if you say, if you would have just, or maybe, maybe next time you should, that's not doing anything. That's you trying to have a power play. That's you trying to be in control. That's you not owning your own crap and taking responsibility for the hurt that you've caused. And it's gross. And it makes the relationship even worse. If you have broken relationship, if you've sinned against your friend or your family or God and you go to them, it should be with sincerity. It should be with authenticity. It shouldn't be you trying to justify the behavior, because let's be real honest, if you're in this situation to begin with, there is no justification for your behavior. Number three, admit specifically, remember the quote from last week that I shared from Brene Brown, clear is kind. Don't be vague. Don't simply say, I'm sorry. Be specific. Own it. I'm sorry for lashing out at you when I know you were just trying to help. I'm sorry for talking bad about you behind your back, whether you knew it or not. I'm sorry for not listening when you tried to tell me fill in the blank. I'm sorry that I shared your secret with someone who it was not intended for. There's an element of being bold that needs to match our humility to admit specifically. My wife, God love her, honestly, she's beautiful inside and out. She has more patience than I could ever. And she continues to teach me this because, and maybe you have this person in your life, I have been known to go, I'm sorry. And she'll get like the squinty eye thing and she'll lean back and she goes, yeah, for what? Oh, crap. Um. And you're trying to think all the different things. What can I apologize for? What can I apologize for? I don't know. I just feel like I should. Like, we do that though, right? We'll often apologize for something because we know we've done something wrong, but we haven't done the work to actually listen and understand what we've done wrong. So do the work, understand it, and be specific with your confession. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. You may not ever be able to fully understand the depth of hurt, but you need to acknowledge the hurt that you know is there. Oftentimes in our conflict, ooh, We are masters at inflicting pain. We know how to fight dirty. We know the exact words to say, the exact body language to have to just make things worse and to make that person feel terrible and small. 
that doesn't help forgiveness. That doesn't help reconciliation. Acknowledge the hurt that's been caused. Acknowledge the tears that have been shed, the sleep that has been lost, and the effect that your actions have had. Number five, accept the consequences. This is a hard one because we don't like consequences. Reconciliation doesn't always end with the restoration of the relationship as it once was. And that's a hard, hard truth to understand. There are natural consequences. Sometimes the hurt is so deep or happened for so long that even though there was forgiveness, even though there was reconciliation, it doesn't mean that the relationship will be restored to the way it once was. In our process to heal our friendships, we have to know that we might have to mourn. We might have to mourn what once was and is no longer. We might have to mourn what we thought could be, but will never be. Reconciling a friendship is making things right. It doesn't mean making things the same. Number six, alter your behavior. At A10, we use the word transformation a lot. It's in our vision statement. Our lead pastor, Chris, teaches a transformation class. I think we're doing one this summer. If you're interested, I would definitely encourage you to take it. And it's this idea of understanding that we all have unhealthy habits and pain that have developed in our lives. And it's recognizing that we need grace, but not using grace as an excuse to act however we want. When you're altering your behavior, it's about accepting that grace, but leaning into transformation. It's, so, it's showing someone that you're serious about getting out of the cycle that you've been living in. But it takes time. You've had a lifetime to solidify a habit. You've had a lifetime to develop ways in which we interact with people. It's going to take some time to change that. I think a lot of us in this room can think of people in our lives that we apologize to over and over and over again for the same thing. And hopefully, the frequency of that is becoming less and less because we're actually putting in the work to change. Hopefully, we're seriously pursuing accountability and understanding maybe even counseling so that we can break the shackles of our old behavior. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes because we're human. But at least we're moving in the direction and with intention of change. And that speaks volumes to the people that we've hurt. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. Please forgive me. It's one of the most beautiful and difficult requests we can ever make. Honestly, it's pretty easy to say I'm sorry. And it's pretty easy to be flippant when you say you're sorry. But it takes humility. It takes intention. It takes love. It takes vulnerability to look someone in the eyes and ask them, please forgive me. Now, here's the big question. What if they say no? 
What if we do all this? What if we address everyone involved? We don't use the words ifs, buts, or maybes. We're specific. We acknowledge the hurt and we work on altering our behavior and we ask for forgiveness and they go, I, I just can't. That's a hard question. I like how Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, answers it. He says, you bless them and you move on. When it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Matt Chandler goes on to say, you've owned your sin before God and you've owned your sin before them. There's nothing more you can do except pray and continue to pursue the transforming work of grace in your own heart, in your own life, to learn from your sin and move forward into what the Lord has for you, praying that in time, God will grant to them the ability to forgive and to reconcile. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not always easy, and it may not even end up the way that you want or think. But how much better are our friendships? How much better are our relationships when we actually lean in? When we lean into those things with humility, intention, and love. In a moment, we're going to take communion and we do this every week at Area 10 to remember Christ's death and resurrection and how through that we have forgiveness. We are able to be reconciled to God because God is the author of reconciliation. He is the one that is able to make things right. In a moment, we're going to invite you to come down the left of your aisle and come up to the front and you could grab a piece of bread or a gluten-free cracker and dip it in the juice and head back to your seat and, and remember what forgiveness and reconciliation means. But first, I want to ask you to close your eyes. I want to ask you to close your eyes and, and be introspective for a minute, even if it's uncomfortable. There are people in your life that you need to make amends with, that you need to pursue reconciliation with. Who are they? Tear down the mental wall you've put up as a protection and identify who they are. With your eyes closed, think about it. Who do you need to reconcile with? See their name. Picture their face. Remember why they matter to you. Don't run away from them. Don't run away from the pain you may have caused or that you're experiencing. Simply picture that person or people who your heart longs to be reconciled with. With your eyes closed, see them. Don't lose sight of them. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but first, I want to give you a moment to pray. Pray for that person or people who you are thinking of right now. God, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, the author and the perfecter of reconciliation. 
Now, this is not an easy topic to talk about or rest in at all. But Lord, I, I pray as we get ready to take communion and remember the forgiveness and reconciliation we have with you, that we will not run away from the people that we need to reconcile with in our own life. That is hard or as scary as it might be, that we will allow your spirit to lead us to do our part. To do our part to live humbly, to live with intention, and even in our hurt, to love well. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.